0: Chapter Thirteen Part One of The Life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. The Life of Abraham Lincoln by Ward Hill Layman. Chapter thirteen, part one. Like most other public men in America, Mr. Lincoln made his bread by the practice of his profession, and the better part of his fame by the achievements of the politician. He was a lawyer of some note and compared with the crowds who annually take upon themselves the responsible office of advocate and attorney, he might very justly have been called a good one, for he regarded his office as a trust, and selected and tried his cases, not with a view to personal gain, but to the administration of justice between suitors. And here, midway in his political career, it is well enough to pause and take a leisurely survey of him and his other character of country lawyer from the time he entered the bar at springfield until he was translated from it to the presidential chair it is unnecessary to remind the reader for by this time it must be obvious enough that the aim of the writer is merely to present facts and contemporaneous opinions with as little comment as possible in the courts and at the bar meetings immediately succeeding his death his professional brethren poured out in volumes their testimony to his worth and abilities as a lawyer but in estimating the value of this testimony it is fair to consider the state of the public mind at the time it was given the recent triumph of the federal arms under his direction the late overwhelming endorsement of his administration THE UNPARALLELED DEVOTION OF THE PEOPLE TO HIS PERSON AS EXHIBITED AT THE polls, THE FRESH AND BITTER MEMORIES OF THE HIDEOUS TRAGEDY THAT TOOK HIM OFF, THE FURIOUS AND DEADLY PASSIONS IT INSPIRED IN THE ONE PARTY, AND THE AWE, INDIGNATION, AND TERROR IT INSPIRED IN THE OTHER. IT WAS NO TIME FOR NICE AND CRITICAL EXAMINATIONS, EITHER OF HIS MENTAL OR HIS MORAL CHARACTER. And it might have been attended with personal danger to attempt them. For days and nights together, it was considered treason to be seen in public with a smile on the face. Men who spoke evil of the fallen chief, or even ventured a doubt concerning the ineffable purity and saintliness of his life, were pursued by mobs, were beaten to death with paving stones, or strung up by the neck to lamp posts. If there was any rivalry, it was as to who should be foremost and fiercest among his avengers who should canonize him in the most solemn words who should compare him to the most sacred character in all history sacred and profane he was prophet priest and king he was washington he was moses and there were not wanting even those who likened him to the god and redeemer of all the earth these latter thought they discovered in his lowly origin his kindly nature, his benevolent precepts, and the homely anecdotes in which he taught the people, strong points of resemblance between him and the divine Son of Mary. Even at this day men are not wanting in prominent positions in life, who knew Mr. Lincoln well, and who do not hesitate to make such a comparison. For many years Judge David Davis was the near friend and the intimate associate of Mr. Lincoln. He presided in the court where Lincoln was oftenest heard. Year in and year out they traveled together from town to town, from county to county, riding frequently in the same conveyance, and lodging in the same room. Although a judge on the bench, Mr. Davis watched the political course of his friend with affectionate solicitude, and more than once interposed most effectually to advance his fortunes when Mr. Lincoln ascended to the presidency, it was well understood that no man enjoyed more confidential relations with him than Judge Davis. At the first opportunity, he commissioned Judge Davis an associate justice of that august tribunal, the Supreme Court of the United States. And, upon his death, Judge Davis administered upon his estate at the request of his family. Add to this the fact that, among American jurists, Judge Davis's fame is, if not peerless, at least not excelled by that of any man whose reputation rests upon his labors as they appear in the book of reports. And we may fairly consider him a competent judge of the professional character of Mr. Lincoln. At Indianapolis, Judge Davis spoke of him as follows, quote, I enjoyed for over twenty years the personal friendship of Mr. Lincoln. We were admitted to the bar about the same time, and traveled for many years. What is known in Illinois as the Eighth Judicial Circuit. In 1848, when I first went on the bench, the circuit embraced fourteen counties, and Mr. Lincoln went with the court to every county. Railroads were not then in use, and our mode of travel was either on horseback or in buggies. This simple life he loved preferring it to the practice of the law in a city where, although the remuneration would be greater, the opportunity would be less for mixing with the great body of the people who loved him and whom he loved. Mr. Lincoln was transferred from the bar of that circuit to the office of President of the United States, having been without official position since he left Congress in 1849. In all the elements that constitute the great lawyer— he had few equals. He was great both at Anisi prius and before an appellate tribunal. He seized the strong points of a cause, and presented them with clearness and great compactness. His mind was logical and direct, and he did not indulge in extraneous discussion. Generalities and platitudes had no charms for him. An unfailing vein of humor never deserted him. And he was always able to chain the attention of court and jury when the cause was the most uninteresting by the appropriateness of his anecdotes his power of comparison was large and he rarely failed in a legal discussion to use that mode of reasoning the framework of his mental and moral being was honesty and our wrong cause was poorly defended by him the ability which some eminent lawyers possess of explaining away the bad points of a cause by ingenious sophistry was denied him in order to bring into full activity his great powers it was necessary that he should be convinced of the right and justice of the matter which he advocated when so convinced whether the cause was great or small he was usually successful he read law books but little except when the cause in hand made it necessary yet he was usually self-reliant, depending on his own resources, and rarely consulting his brother lawyers, either on the management of his case or on the legal questions involved. Mr. Lincoln was the fairest and most accommodating of practitioners, granting all favors which he could do consistently with his duty to his client, and rarely availing himself of an unweary oversight of his adversary. He hated wrong and oppression everywhere, and many a man whose fraudulent conduct was undergoing review in a court of justice has writhed under his terrific indignation and rebukes he was the most simple and unostentatious of men in his habits having few wants and those easily supplied to his honour be it said that he never took from a client even when the cause was gained more than he thought the service was worth and the client could reasonably afford to pay the people where he practiced law were not rich, and his charges were always small. When he was elected president, I questioned whether there was a lawyer in the circuit who had been at the bar as long a time, whose means were not larger. It did not seem to be one of the purposes of his life to accumulate a fortune. In fact, outside of his profession, he had no knowledge of the way to make money, and he never even attempted it. Mr. Lincoln was loved by his brethren of the bar, and no body of men will grieve more at his death, or pay more sincere tributes to his memory. His presence on the circuit was watched for worth interest, and never failed to produce joy and hilarity. When casually absent, the spirits of both bar and people were depressed. He was not fond of controversy, and would compromise a lawsuit whenever practicable. End quote more or other evidence than this may perhaps be superfluous such an eulogium from such a source is more than sufficient to determine the place mr lincoln is entitled to occupy in the history or more properly speaking the traditions of the western bar if sir matthew hale had spoken thus of any lawyer of his day he would have ensured to the subject of his praise a place in the estimation of men only less conspicuous and honorable than that of the great judge himself at the risk however of unnecessary accumulation we venture to record an extract from judge drummond's address at chicago Quote, with a probity of character known to all with an intuitive insight into the human heart with a clearness of statement which was in itself an argument with uncommon power and felicity of illustration often, it is true, of a plain and homely kind, and with that sincerity and earnestness of manner which carried conviction. He was, perhaps, one of the most successful jury lawyers we ever had in the State. He always tried a case fairly and honestly. He never intentionally misrepresented the evidence of a witness, nor the argument of an opponent. He met both squarely, and, if he could not explain the one or answer the other, substantially admitted it he never misstated the law according to his own intelligent view of it such was the transparent candour and integrity of his nature that he could not well or strongly argue a side or a cause that he thought wrong of course he felt it his duty to say what could be said and to leave the decision to others but there could be seen in such cases the inward struggles of his own mind in trying a case, he might occasionally dwell too long upon, or give too much importance to, an inconsiderable point. But this was the exception, and generally he went straight to the citadel of the cause or question, and struck home there, knowing, if that were one, the outworks would necessarily fall. He could hardly be called very learned in his profession, and yet he rarely tried a cause without fully understanding the law applicable to it, and I have no hesitation in saying he was one of the ablest lawyers I have ever known. If he was forcible before a jury, he was equally so with the court. He detected, with unerring sagacity, the weak points of an opponent's argument, and pressed his own views with overwhelming strength. His efforts were quite unequal, and it might happen that he would not, on some occasions, strike one as at all remarkable. But let him be thoroughly roused, let him feel that he was right, and that some principle was involved in his cause, and he would come out with an earnestness of conviction, a power of argument, and a wealth of illustration that I have never seen surpassed." End quote. Mr. Lincoln's partnership with John T. Stuart began on the twenty seventh of April, eighteen thirty seven and continued until the 14th of April, 1841, when it was dissolved, in consequence of Stewart's election to Congress. In that same year, 1841, Mr. Lincoln united in practice with Stephen T. Logan, late presiding judge of the district, and they remained together until 1845. Soon afterwards he formed a co-partnership with William H. Herndon, his friend, familiar, and we may almost say, biographer, a connection which terminated only when the senior partner took an affectionate leave of the old circuit, the old office, home, friends, and all familiar things, to return no more till he came a blackened corpse. Quote, "'He once told me of you,' says Mr. Whitney, in one of his letters to Mr. Herndon. "'They had taken you in as partner, supposing that you had a system that would keep things in order.' but that he found that you had no more system than he had, but that you were a fine lawyer, so that he was doubly disappointed. End quote. footnote The following letter exhibits the character of his early practice, and gives us a glimpse into his social and political life. Springfield, December twenty third, eighteen thirty nine. Dear blank. Dr. Henry will write you all the political news i write this about some little matters of business you recollect you told me you had drawn the chicago massac money and sent it to the claimants a blank hawk-billed yankee is here besetting me at every turn i take saying that robert kenzie never received the eighty dollars to which he was entitled can you tell anything about the matter again old mr wright who lives up south fork somewhere He's teasing me continually about some deeds which he says he left with you which i can find nothing of can you tell where they are the legislature is in session and has suffered the bank to forfeit its charter without benefit of clergy there seems but little disposition to resuscitate it whenever a letter comes from you to mrs blank i carry it to her and then i see betty she's a tolerable nice fellow now Maybe I will write again when I get more time Your friend as ever A Lincoln PS The Democratic Giant is here, but he is not now worth talking about AL End of Footnote As already stated by Judge Davis, Mr Lincoln was not quote, a great reader of law books, end quote, but what he knew he knew well and within those limits was self-reliant and even intrepid. He was, what is sometimes called, a case lawyer, a man who reasoned almost entirely to the court and jury from analogous causes previously, decided and reported in the books, and not from the elementary principles of the law, with the great underlying reasons for its existence. In consultation he was cautious, conscientious, and painstaking, and was seldom prepared to advise except after careful and tedious examination of the authorities he did not consider himself bound to take every case that was brought to him nor to press all the points in favor of a client who in the main was right and entitled to recover he is known to have been many times on the verge of quarrelling with old and valued friends because he could not see the justice of their claims and therefore could not be induced to act as their counsel. Henry McHenry, one of his new Salem associates, brought him a case involving the title to a piece of land. McHenry had placed the family in a cabin, which Mr. Lincoln believed to be situated on the other side of the adversary's line. He told McHenry that he must move the family out. Quote, McHenry said that he should not do it. Well, said Mr. Lincoln, if you do not— I shall not attend to the suit. McHenry said he did not care a blank whether he did or did not, that he, Lincoln, was not all the lawyer there was in town. Lincoln studied a while and asked about the location of the cabin, and then said, McHenry, you are right, I will attend to the suit, and did attend to it, and gained it, and that was all the harsh words that passed. End quote. Quote, a citizen of Springfield, says Mr. Herndon, who visited our office on business about a year before Mr. Lincoln's nomination, relates the following. Mr. Lincoln was seated at his table, listening very attentively to a man who was talking earnestly in a low tone. After the would-be client had stated the facts of his case, Mr. Lincoln replied, Yes, there is no reasonable doubt, but that I can gain your case for you. I CAN SET A WHOLE NEIGHBORHOOD AT LOGGERHEADS, I CAN DISTRESS A WIDOWED MOTHER AND HER SIX FATHERLESS CHILDREN, AND THEREBY GET FOR YOU SIX HUNDRED DOLLARS, WHICH RIGHTFULLY BELONGS, IT APPEARS TO ME, AS MUCH TO THE WOMAN AND HER CHILDREN AS IT DOES TO YOU. YOU MUST REMEMBER THAT SOME THINGS THAT ARE LEGALLY RIGHT ARE NOT MORALLY RIGHT. I SHALL NOT TAKE YOUR CASE, BUT WILL GIVE YOU A LITTLE ADVICE, FOR WHICH I WILL CHARGE YOU NOTHING. You seem to be a sprightly, energetic man. I would advise you to try your hand at making six hundred dollars in some other way." End quote. In the summer of eighteen forty one, Mr. Lincoln was engaged in a curious case. The circumstances impressed him very deeply with the insufficiency and danger of quote, circumstantial evidence, so much so that he not only wrote the following account of it to Speed, but another more extended one which was printed in a newspaper published at quincy his mind was full of it he could think of nothing else it is apparent that in his letter to speed he made no pause to choose his words there is nothing constrained and nothing studied or deliberate about it but its simplicity perspicuity and artless grace make it a model of english composition what goldsmith once said of locke may be better said of this letter Quote, he never says more or less than he ought, and never makes use of a word that he could have changed for a better. Springfield, June nineteenth, eighteen forty one. Dear Speed, We have had the highest state of excitement here for a week past that our community has ever witnessed, and although the public feeling is somewhat allayed, the curious affair which aroused it is very far from being over yet cleared of mystery. It would take a choir of paper to give you anything like a full account of it, and I therefore only propose a brief outline. The chief personages in the drama are Archibald Fisher, supposed to be murdered, and Archibald Trailer, Henry Trailer, and William Trailer, supposed to have murdered him. The three trailers are brothers. The first Arch, as you know, lives in town. The second Henry in clary's grove and the third william in warren county and fisher the supposed murdered being without a family had made his home with william on saturday evening being the twenty ninth of may fisher and william came to henry's in a one-horse dearborn and there stayed over sunday and on monday all three came to springfield henry on horseback and joined archibald at myers the dutch carpenter that evening at supper Fisher was missing, and so next morning some ineffectual search was made for him, and on Tuesday at one o'clock p.m. William and Henry started home without him, In a day or two Henry and one or two of his Clary Grove neighbors came back for him again, and advertised his disappearance in the papers. The knowledge of the matter thus far had not been general, and here it dropped entirely, until about the tenth when keys received a letter from the postmaster in warren county that william had arrived at home and was telling a very mysterious and improbable story about the disappearance of fisher which induced the community there to suppose he had been disposed of unfairly keys made this letter public which immediately set the whole town and adjoining county agog and so it has continued until yesterday the mass of the people commenced a systematic search for the dead body a wicker's bomb was dispatched to arrest henry trailer at the grove and jim maxey to warren to arrest william on monday last henry was brought in and showed an evident inclination to insinuate that he knew fisher to be dead and that arch and william had killed him he said he guessed the body could be found in spring creek between the beard town road and Hickock's mill away the, the people swept like a herd of buffalo and cut down Hickok's Mill Dam, Nolan's Volans, to draw the water out of the pond, and then went up and down and down and up the creek, fishing and raking and raking and ducking and diving for two days, and after all, no dead body found. In the meantime, a sort of scuffling ground had been found in the brush and the angle or point where the road leading into the woods passed the brewery and the one leading in past the brick grove met from the scuffle ground was a sign of something about the size of a man having been dragged to the edge of the thicket where joined the track of some small wheeled carriage drawn by one horse as shown by the road tracks the carriage track led off toward spring creek near this dragged trail dr Berryman found two hares which after a long scientific examination he pronounced to be triangular human hair, which term, he says, includes with it the whiskers, the hair growing under the arms, and on other parts of the body. And he judged that these two were of the whiskers, because the ends were cut, showing that they had flourished in the neighborhood of the razor's operations. On Thursday last, Jim Maxey brought in William Trailer from Warren. On the same day, Arch was arrested and put in jail. Yesterday, Friday, William was put upon his examining trial before May and Lavely. Archibald and Henry were both present. Lamborn prosecuted, and Logan, Baker, and your humble servant defended. A great many witnesses were introduced and examined, but I shall only mention those whose testimony seemed most important. The first of these was Captain Ransdell. He swore that, when William and Henry left Springfield for home on Tuesday before mentioned, they did not take the direct route which you know leads by the butcher's shop but that they followed the street north until they got opposite or nearly opposite may's new house after which he could not see them from where he stood and it was afterwards proved that in about an hour after they started they came into the street by the butcher's shop from towards the brickyard. dr merriman and others swore to what is stated about the scuffle-ground, drag-trail, whiskers, and carriage-tracks. Henry was then introduced by the prosecution. He swore that, when they started for home, they went out north, as Ransdell stated, and turned down west by the brickyard into the woods, and there met Archibald, that they proceeded a small distance farther, when he was placed as a sentinel to watch for, and announced the approach of, any one that might happen that way that William and Arch took the dearborn out of the road a small distance to the edge of the thicket, where they stopped, and he saw them lift the body of a man into it, that they then moved off with the carriage in the direction of Hickok's Mill, and he loitered about for something like an hour, when William returned with the carriage, but without Arch, and said they had put him in a safe place, that they went somehow, he did not know exactly how, into the road close to the brewery, and proceeded on to clary's grove he also stated that some time during the day william told him that he and arch had killed fisher the evening before that the way they did it was by him william knocking him down with a club and arch then choking him to death an old man from warren called dr gilmore was then introduced on the part of the defence he swore that he had known fisher for several years the fisher had resided at his house a long time at each of two different spells, once while he built a barn for him, and once while he was doctored for some chronic disease, that two or three years ago Fisher had a serious hurt in his head by the bursting of a gun, since which he had been subject to continued bad health and occasional aberration of mind. He also stated that on last Tuesday, being the same day that Maxey arrested William Trailer, he, the doctor, was from home in the early part of the day, and on his return about eleven o'clock, found Fisher at his house in bed, and apparently very unwell. That he asked him how he had come from Springfield. The Fisher had said he had come by Peoria, and also told of several other places he had been at, more in the direction of Peoria, which showed that he at the time of speaking did not know where he had been wandering about in a state of derangement. He further stated in about two hours he received a note from one of trailer's friends advising him of his arrest and requesting him to go on to springfield as a witness to testify as to the state of fisher's health in former times that he immediately set off calling up two of his neighbors as company and riding all evening and all night overtook maxie and william at lewiston in fulton county the maxie refusing to discharge trailer upon his statement his two neighbors returned, and he came on to Springfield. Some question being made as to whether the doctor's story was not a fabrication, several acquaintances of his, among whom was the same postmaster who wrote to Keyes, as before mentioned, were introduced as sort of cumbercators, who swore that they knew the doctor to be of good character for truth and veracity, and generally of good character in every way. Here the testimony ended, and the trailers were discharged arch and william expressing both in word and manner their entire confidence that fisher would be found alive at the doctor's by galloway mallory and myers who a day before had been dispatched for that purpose while henry still protested that no power on earth could ever show fisher alive thus stands this curious affair when the doctor's story was first made public it was amusing to scan and contemplate the countenances and hear the remarks of those who had been actively engaged in the search for the dead body. Some looked quizzical, some melancholy, and some furiously angry. Porter, who had been very active, swore he always knew the man was not dead, and that he had not stirred an inch to hunt for him. Langford, who had taken the lead in cutting down Hickok's mill dam, and wanted to hang hickox for objecting, looked most awfully woebegone. He seemed the Victim OF UNREQUITED AFFECTION, AS REPRESENTED IN THE COMIC ALMANACS WE USED TO LAUGH OVER. AND HEART, THE LITTLE DRAY-MAN THAT HAULED MOLLY HOME ONCE, SAID IT WAS TOO DAMN BAD TO HAVE SO MUCH TROUBLE, AND NO HANGING AFTER ALL. I COMMENCED THIS LETTER ON YESTERDAY, SINCE WHICH I RECEIVED YOURS OF THE THIRTEENTH. I stick TO MY PROMISE TO COME TO LOUISVILLE. NOTHING NEW HERE, EXCEPT WHAT I HAVE WRITTEN. I have not seen since my last trip, and I am going out there as soon as I mail this letter. Yours forever, Lincoln. End of chapter thirteen, part one. Recording by Greg Giordano, Newport Ritchie, Florida.